We're in chapter 13 of 2 Kings, and we had been in verse 8 last week, and we left off reading and studying the words in verse 8 about King Jehoahaz and what his reign consisted of. Specifically, we looked at the words, his might, his might. And the words about his might, the Bible tells us, were written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. So there were other writings, historical writings, not just the Bible, but secular writings, as we would call them, about his might. And we look more deeply last week into how man relies on his might to try to bring a dead person into a better standing with the Lord. And we noted that all of the things written about King Jehoahaz's might, or anyone else's might for that matter, although they may be informative and so forth, they don't do anything for the person who's died. In fact, it's a foolish waste of time that is spent by many religions trying to prop a person up before God after they've died, trying to increase their standing with the Lord. And those efforts to do that, praying for the dead in the rosary and baptizing, literally baptizing someone in place of a dead person, which is a misinterpretation of a scripture about that, though all those things are nothing more than the trampling under the foot of the covenant, the blood covenant of the Lord. And in that blood covenant, he ordained that through the blood of his son, Jesus, to save all who believed in him. And that they would be saved only through that, through faith in that finished work. And so man's might, his might, as we saw in our text, cannot subtract from that, and it cannot add to the sufficiency of that finished work. But before we leave verse 8, let's look at how God works his might through man to bring a person from darkness to light, from unbelief to belief in the truth. In Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul was writing about how, the, how God made the gospel effectual, meaning it had an effect, the desired effect. How God made the gospel effectual through the preaching of the apostles. And in Galatians 2 verse 8, it said, in speaking of God, For he, that is God, that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. So Paul wrote that the same God who made the gospel effectual through Peter's preaching to the circumcision, that was to the Jews, that same God was mighty in him toward the Gentiles. So it wasn't that you had this outstanding preacher, Peter, Simon Peter, and because he was outstanding and mighty in word and deed, the Jews were saved. It wasn't about that. 
God was mighty through Peter to the Jews. And God was mighty through Paul. It wasn't mighty Paul. It was God mighty through Paul to the Gentiles. It was the Spirit of God in Paul who was mighty. It wasn't his fantastic preaching or his mighty and imposing demeanor that saved people. It's God's mighty work in Paul and through Paul and in Peter and through Peter that brought people to salvation. Now, Jehoahaz had every opportunity to be commended, to be praised for his walk with God. But he chose not to walk with God, just to use God as a temporary shield from a temporary enemy. Remember when he besought the Lord because Hazael, the Syrian, was giving Israel the fits? So there wasn't anything about God's might through Jehoahaz that could be written in these chronicles because Jehoahaz wasn't interested in what God's might could do through him. He wanted God's might to save him from a temporary enemy. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we're told that at the beginning of his reign. Now let's look at verse 9. We're in 2 Kings 13, if you've just joined us on the internet. Verse 9. And Jehoahaz slept with his fathers. That means he died. And they buried him in Samaria. And Joash, his son, reigned in his stead. So man dies. Man is replaced by another man who will also die, and so on. And yet Jehoahaz left his son a sorry testimony. And I think this is also what happened in Solomon's case. You may say, wait a minute, wasn't Solomon among the greatest kings ever? Oh, he got a good start that way. He was certainly the wisest and had more riches and All of that had 40 years of peace during his reign. Those were great things. But when Solomon died, he left the throne to Rehoboam, his son. And in Solomon's initial years, he was wise. That's what he asked for. He asked for understanding from the Lord, and the Lord gave it to him so he could judge the people Israel. He was faithful to the Lord. He wrote Proverbs. And the chronicles of the beginning of Solomon's life were wonderful and glorious. But his last years, he did the same thing Jehoahaz is doing here. In fact, the same thing Jehoahaz did his whole time on the throne. Both of them, Solomon in the end of his life and Jehoahaz his whole life or his whole reign, refused to heed God's counsel. You may recall that Solomon ignored God's word about adultery. He had hundreds of wives and concubines. And he should have just had one. All he needed was one wife. Everyone after that was not a bonus, but a sin. So when Rehoboam, Solomon's son, took the throne, is it any wonder that he ignored the counsel of his father's wise men? Let me take you back to that for a moment. Solomon's counselors were wise men. They had been exposed to the wisdom of Solomon that he had gained from the Lord. 
And they spoke with Rehoboam and said, hey, look, here's how you need to treat these people you're about to rule. This is the right way to do it. And then the boys that Rehoboam grew up with said, no, don't listen to those old geezers. Do what we say. Be hard on them. And so Rehoboam ignored the counsel of his father's wise men. Now, he knew that counsel. He knew his father's proverbs. He'd grown up with them, hearing them. But he saw his father's actions. So rather than doing as his father said, he did as his father did. And that's what our kids do, too. That's what I did. Well, I heard what my parents said, but if I saw my parents do something that was different than what they said, and believe me, we've all done that, then I wanted to do what they did. Now, this is a crucial matter, and because it is, I want to give you another passage that shows the tragic results of a Christian father saying one thing and doing another. In Exodus chapter 19, it's been a few years since we've studied that. We learn about Sodom and Gomorrah and the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah. But before that, Abram and his nephew Lot had been traveling. And their herdmen were quarreling with each other. And so Abram said to Lot, Hey, there's no reason for this quarreling. We're brethren. Why don't you... Pick one way and I'll go the other. Now this is Abram. He could have told Lot, son, I'm the elder. I'll go here and you go over there. But he said, Lot, you, you pick. Where do you want to go? Where, do, where would you like to land with all of your cattle and your herdmen and your family? And I'll just go somewhere else. Boy, that's a meek, humble spirit right there. And Lot, it said he lifted up his eyes and beheld the plain of Sodom, that it was well watered. And so he did the same thing Eve did. He saw something that looked good to him, and he went. And so he raised his family there in Sodom, which was a wicked, evil city full of all kinds of sin. The sin that is highlighted for us in Exodus 19 is the sexual sin, the homosexuality that God was displeased with and for which he decided to destroy Sodom. In fact, God sent two angels there. To destroy Sodom, and those perverts tried to lie with those men. Now, listen to how Lot's sons in law responded when he said, Hey, boys, judgment is coming, let's get out of here. When he all of a sudden got his Bible out and said, Hey, Bible says this, we need to do it. In verse 14, it's Exodus 19 14. And Lot went out. And spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. He gave them God's word, and they looked at him and said, Huh, who is this guy? Why is he all of a sudden telling us God's word? It's like mockery. It's like a joke to them. His own sons-in-law 
to whom Lot had entrusted his daughters, his two daughters, heard what came out of Lot's mouth. It was a warning of the judgment of God. And yet they looked at him as though he were mocking. They didn't take him seriously. And when you read later who left Sodom, it wasn't those two sons-in-law. They didn't go. Lot and his wife and his two daughters. And his wife didn't make it a par three past that gates of, of Sodom before she looked back and became NACL. What is that, girls? That's right. NACL is the sodium chloride, isn't it? Salt. They knew. They were just being humble. Now, although these sons-in-law made a wicked decision to stay, although what Lot told them was true, even though he seemed as one that mocked, Lot is not free from blame in this matter. Had Lot walked with the Lord, well, first of all, he would have never gone into Sodom. He would have said, Father Abraham, you're the elder here. I'll tell you what we'll do. The herdmen that are having trouble with each other, we'll sit them down and say, look, fellas, this is how it's going to be. We're going to get along. We're family. We're not going to quarrel and fight. We're not in charge here. But he didn't. And had he chosen to leave Abraham, he would have fallen down and asked the Lord, where would you have me to go? The Bible says Lot was a just man. He was a Christian. That's why I use this example. Had Lot walked with the Lord, he never would have offered his own daughters to those sexual perverts outside the door who were clamoring for those men. Had Lot walked with the Lord, perhaps he would have chosen better sons-in-law for his daughters. Had he walked with the Lord, a lot of things would have been different. Had we walked with the Lord, a lot of things would have been different, right? And now he's tried to brush off the dust of God's word in the crisis and use it to save his family from death. He seemed as one that mocked. So fathers, we can say it to mothers too, but fathers, since we're talking about Lot, leave your children a godly example to follow. Even if your first years as a parent were fraught with sin, bad decisions, you can't undo that, but you can still turn the light on for them right now. And don't turn it off. You let the light of the glorious gospel of Christ shine through you right now. Don't say, well, it's, it's too late. Uh, I, I didn't do what I was supposed to as a dad bringing up my kids. I didn't leave my wife a good example. I was an embarrassment to my parents. So I'm, I, God can't use me. Well, yes, he can. Turn the light on. Show your children, your spouse, your grandchildren, your co-workers, but especially your children. A consistent, faithful walk with the Lord. When the times are rough and people around you are dying, you lose your job, your wife leaves you, you lose your health, that's when people are going to be looking. That's when your children are going to be looking to see, is this real? Is this newfound dad, the one who reads his Bible and goes to church and has cleaned his life up and all of these things, is this real? 
Or is this just another thing the old man's trying to do? Is this a midlife crisis? Will your faith be evident to your children in those times? So that when you warn them about what God's word says, you won't be as one that mocked. When you walk with the Lord, people, and sometimes especially your family, will say you're a hypocrite. They say, well, I know how bad you were. Well, so does the Lord. And now you're so self-righteous, and we don't want to be self-righteous. You let God take care of all that name-calling. Just be faithful to him and let your children, and many of us in here have adult children, some of us have little children, some of us have grandchildren, middle-aged children. But you let God take care of all that name-calling. And let your children see a real-life example of what happens when God saves and sanctifies a sinner. Jehoah has died. Joash reigned in his stead. He had no good example to follow. Let's see how that went. Look in verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, now that's the other Joash, began Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, to reign over Israel in Samaria and reigned 16 years. Joash in Judah and Joash in Israel. Both of them are also called Jehoahash as well, or Jehoash. There's been a good Joash before, and now there's another Joash. Are you thoroughly confused now? Don't be, it's okay. I don't expect you to know the name and order of succession of every king in the Bible. I certainly don't. That's why I have to study and look at it and look at it again. But the lessons that we're learning from each one of them are the ones that we want to stick. What's written about their lives will benefit us greatly because something is going to be written about your life when you die. In fact, it's already being written. And whether it's ever put on paper or not, it's written in the hearts of the people who know you, who see you. Verse 11 this is speaking of Joash. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but he walked therein. This is almost exactly what was said about his father. No buts, no exceptions, just a chip off the old sinful block. And you know, that's what's expected when a sinner begets a sinner, who then begets another sinner. In other words, I'm a sinner, and I have a child, and my wife has a child, we have a child who's a sinner, and then that one has a child who's a sinner. That's what you get if you just let nature run its course, so to speak. Sinners begetting sinners begetting more sinners. And no amount of starting over with a new king in Israel or with a new baby will wipe away sin. And apart from God's grace, man just goes on sinning and sinning and being condemned in his sin. And so does the next generation and the next generation. Thank God he'll put an end to all of that when Jesus redeems his creation once and for all and puts away sin and death and punishes evil in the lake of fire. Verse 12 
And the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and his might wherewith he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Thirty-seven years, and we see just about two or three verses there, don't we? He was evil, he reigned this long, and verse 12 says something about his might. There we see it again, the might of Joash. Not God's might working through Joash as the subject of his eulogy. You know, if all that could be said about me was, boy, Andy was a strong fella. Boy, Andy was a good fisherman. Andy loved to garden. What a waste of words that would be when compared to how God's might has worked in me and through me. I want the eulogy about me. It doesn't have to be long. In fact, you could do a drive-up eulogy for me. Just pull your car up, open the door, and listen to hopefully someone be able to say he was a Christian and a faithful servant of the Lord. Nothing else really matters. Oh, it might be comforting to uh, the family who I leave behind or friends to hear nice things that uh, are, are mostly worldly or earthly. But what really matters, all that matters is he a Christian? Yeah. Did he serve the Lord? Yes. That's what I want. One of them's already a done deal, the Christian part. And the serving the Lord, that's the sanctification. That's the continuation of applying what God's Word says about how I'm supposed to live. And, and that's what I do. And, boy, that's a war right there. One war's already been fought, and there's been a victory for me. But this in the flesh is a daily war. We'll talk about it more in just a moment. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6. Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. So you have two kinds of people there in that proverb. The one who proclaims his own goodness, the braggart, and then somebody who's faithful. You know, if a person has to tell you how faithful they are, there's very little chance that they're very faithful. They spend too much time talking about it. And in every job I've worked, which isn't many, but uh, every group of people I've worked around, we have that same crowd. And we do in church, too. We have people who, well, they want to talk about stuff, but when it comes time to get the shovel out and punch a hole in the ground, you can't find them, right? It's that way at work. And so... I just want to be a faithful man, and I hope that's the, what you desire, not someone who proclaims his own goodness. I would rather be found faithful than to be found mighty any day. And if I'm found to be mighty, may it be God being mighty through me, working in me to accomplish his will. That's what you need to see. When Jesus told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, to let your light so shine before men. Why did he tell them to let their, sh their light shine before men? So that their might could be seen? No, that their good works could be seen to glorify their Father which was in heaven. That was what he said. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you? No, my Father which is in heaven. That's God's might working through the disciples. That's what Jesus wanted to see so that God would be glorified. 
So that means we don't, when we become Christians, we don't just go sit in a corner somewhere and say, well, I'm, I'm just going to be so meek that nobody ever notices me. No, you got a light. You're supposed to let it shine. The Bible says, do not put it under a bushel, but on a hill. So it gives light to all that are in the room, everyone who is around you. Look particularly here at this phrase in verse 12 about Joash. It says his might in the middle of the verse, wherewith he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah. Now remember, Israel was once a unified nation. They'd been brought out from Egypt together. Even though a mixed multitude was with them, they were a unified nation brought out of bondage together. They were brought through the wilderness together. And they were brought into a promised land together, even though when Joshua parceled out the land, those tribes had different areas that they were given. But they were still one nation, Israel. They had one God, and they were bound to that law that God gave them, and they were also protected by that law if they obeyed it. And when God divided the kingdom under Rehoboam, Solomon's son, he did it because of Solomon's disobedience. He told Solomon, I'm going to divide this kingdom, I'm going to rend it. But I'm not going to do it in your days for David, your father's sake. So he did it in Rehoboam's days. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, took those northern ten tribes. I know that's just review, but I wanted to remind you. So we learn a great truth again here as well. Man cannot unite man. Only God can do that. In Psalm chapter 133, verse 1, Psalm 133, verse 1, the psalmist wrote this, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Boy, that sounds great, doesn't it? And it is great. In fact, it's good and pleasant in the eyes of the Lord. And in our lifetimes, we have seen many powerful men worldwide telling us that we all need to unite under some common principle or some banner, something that they're pushing. It never is God's word. And none of those strategies have ever worked. They never have. And in fact, none of them are going to work. The only thing man knows how to do is divide. That's it. Man doesn't know how to unite. Man thinks he knows how to unite, but he doesn't really. That he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, is not a good testimony. Because Israel and Judah should have been seeking to be one again. You know, the people with whom you are united today, I don't mean in the bonds of Christ, but in some other way. If you're in some sort of club or you're at work, you have a job, you are in a way united with those around you. Your company or your agency or your own business probably has a mission statement of some type. And if you work there, you have to agree to forward that mission statement that, that when you work, that you are pursuing that mission statement, not working against it. 
And so there's a certain type of unity. What happens when somebody says, I'm not doing it? They get fired, don't they? So we don't have unity anymore because they don't want to operate under the banner of that mission statement. And the people with whom you're united today may be against you tomorrow. As an example, both we and Orthodox Catholics have a common conviction. We hate abortion. They hate it, we hate it. It's murder. And while we are in agreement about that with them, we do not agree with the Catholics on the doctrine of salvation and a whole lot of other things for that matter. If you, so if you look at this more closely, you'll see that what binds us in agreement with Catholics about abortion is what? It's God's Word. That's what unites us about that matter right there is God's Word. And if only they and any other spinoff of a religion would be bound in agreement with God's Word on salvation and all other spiritual matters, then we would be united with them as well on the basis of agreement with God's Word. That's the only thing that can truly and permanently unite people. Did you know that every person who's ever lived would be in perfect unity if we all agreed that God's Word was truth and by His grace lived by it. God's Word has much to say about unity, but I found the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians to be especially helpful in understanding how God sees unity. And I asked you to turn there earlier, so hopefully you've made it to that chapter. It's Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. I don't normally read that many verses. But as I'm reading, I want you to listen for the word one and the word unity. Paul wrote, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended... What is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now there are several weeks worth of lessons there to expound upon. We'll not try to do that today. But did you notice the word one and the word unity over and again? In verse 3, we are to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that's only possible through the gospel. The only thing that gives you peace is faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. 
And then in verse 13, it says, All of these things are done till we come, till we all come in the unity of the faith. So the conclusion of the matter of unity here is that it comes by faith in the Son of God, and only in Him will we be one. Unity does not come, and you can turn back to your original text in 2 Kings 13. Unity does not come by a treaty or by an alliance or a union, but by being one with Christ. And that's where the rub is. Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The United States are not truly united. Now, there may be somebody who goes, what? What did he say? Oh, no, they're not true. We are not truly united. The descendants of the people who came to this land, that'd be us. Our forefathers fought the British. They earned a freedom. And those descendants from those forefathers would soon fight against each other in the war between the states, also called the Civil War. What a funny name, Civil War. Not anything civil about it, but it was the war between the states. In other words, just like Israel and Judah are doing here, whom God had as one people, have turned on each other. You know, not all war is bad. There's a war against good or between good and evil, isn't there? And if you're on the side of good, then that war is a worthy contest. And if you're on the side of evil, it's useless for you to fight. And in fact, it's ill-advised. John, the apostle, wrote toward the end of the Revelation, in chapter 19, verse 11, a vision that he saw, Revelation 19, 11, he said, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And those are capitalized words. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. So who will this righteous, faithful, and true judge war against? If you go down to verse 19 in that same chapter, Revelation nineteen nineteen, he said, And I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him, against Jesus, that sat on the horse and against his army. Now we know who's going to win that one. It's a done deal already in the eyes of God. So let's apply what we've learned here about how man, though seeming to be unified, soon turns one against the other. Let's apply that to how our church ought to conduct itself in the face of all these heresies, all these errors that are taught in religious assemblies and groups today. I hate to call them churches because the Lord's church won't do that, at least not on purpose. It may mistakenly, we may make a mistake, but we'll soon correct it when we're shown that we're wrong. When the independent Baptist fights against the Southern Baptist who fight against the Church of Christ and who fight against the, the Catholics, some of those battles are centered around things that aren't clearly prohibited in Scripture. They're not said one way or the other. Principles are given, 
like whether the pastor ought to wear a tie or have a beard or whether there should be musical instruments in the church or whether the third revision of the King James translation is the only true translation of God's word. I'm not interested in fighting those battles. That's not righteousness versus unrighteousness. Sometimes, however, those battles are about things that are clearly addressed by God's word. Homosexual acts, adultery, salvation by human effort, doubting the inerrancy of scriptures. And those are things that we must, must take a stand on, a biblical stand. Not our own personal stand, a biblical stand. Now, how do we go about this in a manner that pleases God? Do we take up arms against Joash and Amaziah? No. Do we go to the church across the street or down the road and run up and down the aisles of their service and holler at the members and threaten them for believing wrongly? No, we don't do that. Here's what we do. First of all, we teach the truth. We don't just say we teach the truth. We have to teach it. We're to actually do it. And if a person wants to know the truth, that person will listen to it. If they don't want to know it, they'll disregard it. They may hear it with their ears and go, that's funny. I don't agree with that. But a person who wants to know truth will listen to it. And the thoughtful person will compare that against what they've heard before. And then they will come to the right conclusion about truth, even if it takes them a while to study on it. I don't expect people to be instant converts to something in the Bible, particularly if they've believed it for a long time some other way. I want them to study. I don't want them to say, now, what did he say about it? I want them to go to where I pointed my finger in the Bible and say, hey, you read that. Go home and look at that. Read it several times. Meditate on it. And see if you don't come up to the same conclusion I have. Secondly, we reject that which is not true. We don't teach truth and say, hey, we'll accept anybody's Anybody's interpretation is fine, but this is our opinion here, and you can have your own, and you certainly can have your own, but you can't teach it here. You have to teach truth. We reject that which is not true. And by knowing truth, you'll be able to reject what's not true. So if the church down the road teaches something that's not true, we're not going to go down there and do an all-out assault on their auditorium, hollering and ranting about their false doctrines. But... And if the people from that church ask me to teach them truth, imagine that. I'm going to invite them to this church. I'm not going to tell my Sunday school class, hey guys, <laughs> there's a church down the road that wants me to go preach the truth to them. So, so I'm going to leave you all for a Sunday and go do that. No, sir, they can come here. Because if they really want to know truth and they actually want me to teach it to them, then they will come here. There won't be any begging or negotiating or bargaining. They'll just want to know what time do you start, which door do I go in. That's all they need to know. The ones who want to be taught truth, in fact, need to leave the church where truth is not being taught. So I'm fighting this battle with truth, not threats. Not the tip of the spear or the end of the sword. And thirdly, after we've taught truth, after we've rejected that which is not true, we're talking about how to fight this war. 
We're to believe and practice truth. Imagine that. Teaching is not just about providing the information to the people, but about using that truth to convince you that it's worth believing. And God is the one, His Spirit is the one who does that convincing work through the preacher, through His Word. If I teach truth but I don't believe it and I don't endeavor to live by it, how will my manner of living be useful to anybody that I'm speaking to? They'll say, listen to that hypocrite, and they would be, they'd be right. And then fourthly, having done all that, when we fight this worthy battle, we leave the judgment of those who reject truth to God and what His Word says about it. We don't hold our sword or spear out and force them to convert because we know our place in this war. And we know who will give us the victory. We don't win the war against the apostate church by being mightier speakers or more intelligent scholars or having more degrees. We preach truth, reject that which is not true, believe and live by the truth, and then leave those results to God. It takes all the pressure off. Did you know that? If I teach you truth and... You stew on it a while, and you you say, you know, Brother Andy, I I just don't believe it. Then I may ask you, why? Or do you understand what was taught? If you say, oh, yeah, I'm just not not going there. All right, well, I'm going to leave you with God, because now you know and you said you understand, so this is nothing I can do anything about. This is between you and the Lord. Now, was the battle between Judah and Israel, between Joash and Amaziah, a battle between good and evil, between truth and a lie? No. We've already read what it said about Joash, and he certainly wasn't good. So he couldn't say, oh, this is good fighting evil, even though in his mind he may have thought so. And we won't get to what was written about Amaziah until chapter 14, but the war Joash fought against him was not a war of righteousness. You could sum up Jehoahaz's reign by saying he was mighty and was a fighter. I've seen that sort of thing in obituaries too. She was a fighter. He was a fighter. Well, I don't want to be known as a fighter, but as one who loves people, one who served the Lord faithfully. And I don't deserve any of that, but I surely don't want to be known as, boy, old Andy, he was a fighter. Not in the sense of someone who's just contentious with other people. But I do want to fight against evil by proclaiming the truth, by knowing my place in God's war against unrighteousness, and that is as a teacher. And with that, we'll stop and pick up with verse 13 next week. Father, we're so thankful for those who came to listen, for those who tune in on the Internet. They are precious to us as well. And, Lord, we just pray that you'd take truth, that it would be embedded in our hearts, that... It would be our armor against the heresy and the error that's preached today. And Father, I pray that each one listening and who is here would commit to studying their Bibles. And Lord, not just listening to all the noise that the world is making about religion, trying to discourage us, keep us down, make laws against the rightful proclamation of the truth. And by your grace and by your help, We'll be able to do this and bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.